This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Mr. Parker by Laurie Colwyn. He was very thin, as if the friction of living had burned every unnecessary particle off him. But he was calm and cheery, in the way you expect plump people to be. The story was chosen by Miley Malloy, whose stories have been appearing in the magazine for 12 years now. Her novels include Liars and Saints and A Family Daughter. She joins us from a studio in California. Hi, Miley. Hi. So I think you were about one year old when Mr. Parker came out in in 1973, so I'm sure you didn't read this story then. How did you first find it? (laughs) I read Laurie Colwyn's stories when I was first uh, writing stories, trying to write stories, And I hadn't realized that this story was as old as I was or that Passion and Affect, the collection it was in, was her first collection. She was my parents' age, but she felt more like a contemporary, maybe because I was reading stories she'd written in her 20s. And it was a world that was recognizable to me, although it wasn't my own. And I think she made writing stories seem possible. How did you come across Passion and Affect, the collection? My thesis advisor, when I was in college, suggested to me that I try writing short stories and said, you should read Laurie Colwyn. I think that's how it happened. And then I read all her books. I also tried cooking from her book, Home Cooking, which is a book of essays with recipes. And she says in it about making yeasted bread that you make the dough and then just go about your business. But that wasn't really true. (laughs) The bread I made had the texture of concrete. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Maybe it's better to take the example of her stories than her her recipes. It's the same thing. She makes something seem effortless that is, in fact, really difficult. And, you know, that's the trick. Now, Colin died about 20 years ago when she was only 48. How do you think that the work has held up since then? Where where would she fit into sort of the pantheon of, of contemporary writers for you? That's such a hard question. I know how she fits into my personal canon. And when I was reading her, you know, the fact that she died so young robbed the world of stories. And it also, I think, is part of what made her feel like she was the same age as I was as I was reading them. Uh, I haven't reread most of them since. I remembered this one and remembered loving it. But I was reading her at the same time as I was reading James Salter and Cheever and also Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Flannery O'Connor and J.D. Salinger and sort of trying to figure out what is, you know, the American short story. And she seemed to offer a way in, in a way that others did too, but but she did in particular. What's so special for you about her voice or her style? Uh, She's very clear-sighted and precise about her character's qualities and flaws without being judgmental. And she's very witty and confident and practical. She wrote about love and about how people make a life together and separately. Why do you think Mr. Parker stuck in your head? Because it's about making art and having a mentor. And it's about a mother and a daughter and the transition out of childhood and about how children become aware of the adult world. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. Now here's Miley Malloy reading Mr. Parker by Laurie Colwyn. Mrs. Parker died suddenly in October. She and Mr. Parker lived in a Victorian house next to ours, and Mr. Parker was my piano teacher. He commuted to Wall Street, where he was a securities analyst, but he had studied at Juilliard and gave lessons on the side, for the pleasure of it, not for money. His only students were me and the church organist, who was learning technique on a double keyboard harpsichord Mr. Parker had built one spring. Mrs. Parker was known for her pastry. She and my mother were friends, after a fashion. 
Every two months or so, they spent a day together in the kitchen, baking butter cookies and cream puffs or rolling out strudel leaves. She was thin and wispy and turned out her pastry with abstract expertness. As a girl, she had had bright red hair, which was now the color of old leaves. There was something smoky and autumnal about her. She wore rust-colored sweaters and heather-colored skirts and kept dried weeds in ornamental jars and pressed flowers in frames. If you borrowed a book from her, there were petal marks on the back pages. She was tall, but she stooped as if she had spent a lifetime looking for something she had dropped. The word tragic was mentioned in connection with her death. She and Mr. Parker were in the middle of their middle age, and neither of them had ever been seriously ill. It was heart failure and unexpected. My parents went to see Mr. Parker as soon as they got the news, since they took their responsibilities as neighbors seriously, and two days later they took me to pay a formal condolence call. It was Indian summer, and the house felt closed in. They had used the fireplace during a recent cold spell, and the living room smelled faintly of ash. The only people from the community were some neighbors, the minister and his wife, and the rabbi and his wife and son. The Parkers were Episcopalian, but Mr. Parker played the organ in the synagogue on Saturday mornings and on high holy days. There was a large urn of tea and the last of Mrs. Parker's strudel. On the sofa were Mrs. Parker's sisters, and a man who looked like Mr. Parker ten years younger leaned against the piano, which was closed. The conversation was hushed and stilted. On the way out, the rabbi's son tried to trip me, and I kicked him in return. We were adolescent enemies of a loving sort, and since we didn't know what else to do, we expressed our love in slaps and pinches and other mild attempts at grievous bodily harm. I loved the Parker's house. It was the last Victorian house on the block and was shaped like a wedding cake. The living room was round and all the walls curved. The third floor was a tower, on top of which sat a weather vane. Every five years the house was painted chocolate brown, which faded gradually to the color of weak tea. The front hall window was a stained-glass picture of a fat Victorian baby holding a bunch of roses. The baby's face was puffy and neuter, and its eyes were that of an old man caught in a state of surprise. Its white dress was milky when the light shone through. On Wednesday afternoons, Mr. Parker came home on an early train, and I had my lesson. Mr. Parker's teaching method never varied. He never scolded or corrected. The first 15 minutes were devoted to a warm-up, in which I could play anything I liked. Then Mr. Parker played the lesson of the week. His playing was terrifically precise, but his eyes became dreamy and unfocused. Then I played the same lesson, and after that we worked on the difficult passages— but basically, he wanted me to hear my mistakes. When we began a new piece, we played it part by part, taking turns over and over. After that, we sat in the solarium and discussed the next week's lesson. Mr. Parker usually played a record and talked in detail about the composer, his life and times, and the form. With the exception of Mozart and Schubert, he liked Baroque music almost exclusively. The lesson of the week was always Bach, which Mr. Parker felt taught elegance and precision. Mrs. Parker used to leave us a tray of cookies and lemonade, cold in the summer and hot in the winter, with cinnamon sticks. When the cookies were gone, the lesson was over, and I left, passing the Victorian child in the hallway. In the days after the funeral, 
My mother took several casseroles over to Mr. Parker and invited him to dinner a number of times. For several weeks, he revolved between us, the minister, and the rabbi. Since neither of my parents cared much about music, except to hear my playing praised, the conversation at dinner was limited to the stock market and the blessings of country life. In a few weeks, I got a note from Mr. Parker enclosed in a thank-you note to my parents. It said that piano lessons would begin the following Wednesday. I went to the Parkers after school. Everything was the same. I warmed up for 15 minutes, Mr. Parker played the lesson, and I repeated it. In the solarium were the usual cookies and lemonade. Are they good, these cookies? Mr. Parker asked. I said they were. I made them yesterday, he said. I've got to be my own baker now. Mr. Parker's hair had once been blonde, but was graying into the color of straw. Both he and Mrs. Parker seemed to have faded out of some bright time they once had lived in. He was very thin, as if the friction of living had burned every unnecessary particle off him, but he was calm and cheery in the way you expect plump people to be. On teaching days, he always wore a blue cardigan, buttoned, and a striped tie. Both smelled faintly of tobacco. At the end of the lesson, he gave me a robin's egg he had found. The light was flickering through the bunch of roses in the window as I left. When I got home, I found my mother in the kitchen, waiting and angry. Where were you? she said. At my piano lesson. What piano lesson? You know what piano lesson, at Mr. Parker's. You didn't tell me you were going to a piano lesson, she said. I always have a lesson on Wednesday. I don't want you having lessons there now that Mrs. Parker's gone. She slung a roast into a pan. I stomped off to my room and wrapped the robin's egg in a sweat sock. My throat felt shriveled and hot. At dinner, my mother said to my father, I don't want Jane taking piano lessons from Mr. Parker now that Mrs. Parker's gone. Why don't you want me to have lessons, I said, close to shouting. There's no reason. She can study with Mrs. Murchison. Mrs. Murchison had been my first teacher. She was a fat, myopic woman who smelled of bacon grease and whose repertoire was confined to little classics for children. Her students were mostly under ten, and she kept an asthmatic chow who was often sick on the rug. I won't go to Mrs. Murchison, I shouted. I've outgrown her. Let's be sensible about this, said my father. Calm down, Janie. I stuck my fork into a potato to keep from crying and muttered melodramatically that I would hang myself before I'd go back to Mrs. Murchison. The lessons continued. At night, I practiced quietly, and from time to time, my mother would look up and say, That's nice, dear. Mr. Parker had given me a three-part invention, and I worked on it as if it were granite. It was the most complicated piece of music I had ever played, and I learned it with a sense of loss. Since I didn't know when the axe would fall, I thought it might be the last piece of music I would ever learn from Mr. Parker. The lessons went on and nothing was said, but when I came home after them, my mother and I faced each other with division and coldness. Mr. Parker bought a kitten called Mildred to keep him company in the house. When we had our cookies and lemonade, Mildred got a saucer of milk. At night, I was grilled by my mother as we washed the dishes. I found her sudden interest in the events of my day unnerving. She was systematic, beginning with my morning classes, ending in the afternoon. 
In the light of her intense focus, everything seemed wrong. Then she said with arch sweetness, And how is Mr. Parker, dear? Fine. And how are the lessons going? Fine. And how is the house now that Mrs. Parker's gone? It's the same. Mr. Parker bought a kitten. As I said it, I knew it was betrayal. What kind of kitten? A sort of pink one. What's its name? It doesn't have one, I said. One night, she said, Does Mr. Parker drink? He drinks lemonade. I only asked because it must be so hard for him, she said in an offended voice. He must be very sad. He doesn't seem all that sad to me. It was the wrong thing to say. I see, she said, folding the dish towel with elaborate care. You know how I feel about this, Jane. I don't want you alone in the house with him. He's my piano teacher. I was suddenly in tears, so I ran out of the kitchen and up to my room. She followed me up and sat on the edge of my bed while I sat at the desk, secretly crying onto the blotter. I only want what's best for you, she said. If you want what's best for me, why don't you want me to have piano lessons? I do want you to have piano lessons, but you're growing up and it doesn't look right for you to be in a house alone with a widowed man. I think you're crazy. I don't think you understand what I'm trying to say. You're not a little girl anymore, Jane. There are privileges of childhood and privileges of adulthood, and you're in the middle. It's difficult, I know. You don't know. You're just trying to stop me from taking piano lessons. She stood up. I'm trying to protect you, she said. What if Mr. Parker touched you? What would you do then? She made the word touch sound sinister. You're just being mean, I said, and by this time I was crying openly. It would have fixed things to throw my arms around her, but that meant losing, and this was war. We'll discuss it some other time, she said, close to tears herself. I worked on the invention until my hands shook. When I came home, if the house was empty, I practiced in a panic, and finally it was almost right. On Wednesday, I went to Mr. Parker's and stood at the doorway, expecting something drastic and changed, but it was all the same. There were cookies and lemonade in the solarium. Mildred took a nap on my coat. My 15-minute warm-up was terrible. I made mistakes in the simplest parts and things I knew by heart. Then Mr. Parker played the lesson of the week, and I tried to memorize his phrasing exactly. Before my turn came, Mr. Parker put the metronome on the floor, and we watched Mildred trying to catch the arm. I played it, and I knew it was right. I was playing music, not struggling with a lesson. When I was finished, Mr. Parker grabbed me by the shoulders. That's perfect, really perfect, he said, a real breakthrough. These are the times that make teachers glad they teach. We had lemonade and cookies and listened to some palestrina motets. When I left, it was overcast, and the light was murky and green. I walked home slowly, divided by dread and joy in equal parts. I had performed like an adult, and had been congratulated by an adult, but something had been closed off. I sat under a tree and cried like a baby. He had touched me after all.
That was Miley Malloy reading Mr. Parker by Laurie Colwyn, which was published in The New Yorker in 1973 and collected in Passion and Affect, which is published by Harper Perennial. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Miley... What makes the mother so suspicious of Mr. Parker? She was friends with his wife. She was very forthcoming with him after his wife died. Is it purely a matter of social propriety? Is there something else going on there? She almost seems jealous. I think she knows that the daughter has a connection with him. Neither of the parents care about music, and the daughter doesn't have siblings. And I think there's something that he provides for her. And I think, you know, the daughter's a better judge of character than the mother um, and sort of understands him better and so knows that the social impropriety the mother is responding to doesn't really apply. What's surprising to me is in this story is is what lengths Lori Colwyn goes to to emasculate Mr. Parker. You know, she has him baking and, and getting a pink kitten. I mean, it couldn't be more feminine than that. Even when he's being a man, he's kind of like Mr. Rogers with his, his cardigan and his tie. Um, mm-hmm. And all of that goes so far against the mother's image of him as a, you know, potential predator molester yeah. or, or whatever else. Right. I, I wondered why Laurie Colwyn did that. I think she wants to really make clear that there's no danger here. And also, it's Janie's point of view. And Janie is sexually innocent. She and the rabbi's son kick each other because they don't know what else to do with their love. And also, I'm not sure the kitten is pink. Because, I mean, there are things about kittens that are pink, but kittens themselves aren't pink, and I think that's sort of the beginning of the lie she tells her mother. Her mother's pressing her for information, and she mm-hmm. offers up the fact that the piano teacher's gotten a kitten, but that feels like a betrayal. So she lies about the kitten's name, and she says it doesn't have one, and the kitten's name being Mildred somehow suddenly seems like an intimate fact. 
Mm-hmm. And so by hunting the secrets, the mother has created one. And it happens in this very quick sequence of dialogue. And it's a perfect fraught mother-daughter moment. And the lie's never pointed out in the story, but it's there. Right. By being suspicious, the mother is, is sort of making Janie actually conduct some kind of, of emotional affair in her own mind, at least. Yes, exactly. The mother's insistence creates a kind of corruption. I thought it was interesting that Mr. and Mrs. Parker are described as being in the middle of their middle age, and yet we get all of these images of them as faded and, and autumnal. You know, their hair is fading. It's turning color. It's like dead leaves or straw. Mm-hmm. Even their their house is fading from the color of chocolate to the color of weak tea. What should we make of that? They're not so old. They aren't so old. Maybe it's the point of view of someone in her 20s writing about an adolescent and so these people just seem ancient. <laughs> but yeah, they've got the Victorian house. They're childless. The child they have is this stained glass baby that's sort of odd with its neuter face. Yeah. So again, the, even the baby is neuter. I think it's a non-threatening space. Mm-hmm. And the thing that is intense there against all the fadedness is the music. And maybe once it was the the expert pastry making, but now that's gone. And so what's left that's expert and intense in the house is the music. Mm-hmm. Mr. Parker has a funny kind of religious flexibility. You know, he plays organ in the church and in the synagogue. And, and after his wife dies, he's, she has him going back and forth between the rabbi and the minister. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's some significance to that? I think it's part of the fact that there's no intense religious feeling. There's no intense color. What's clear and vivid about him is that he's a really good teacher. I love that he just wants her to hear her mistakes that he doesn't scold or correct, but wants her to recognize when she's stumbling and wants to teach elegance and precision. The crucial moment in the story is the ending and this moment of touching or not touching or, or how he's touching. You know, he grabs Jane by the shoulders and it's excitement. It's, it's a totally innocent moment. And yet she goes away and weeps because something has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned earlier the stories about the transition out of childhood. Obviously, that that's what's happening in that moment. Why does it suddenly become clear to her? I think she realizes that she has done something different, that she's actually played real music. And he grabs her shoulders because he's so proud of her, and she leaves the house and weeps. And there are all these complicated reasons for it. It's because her mother has made the idea of his touching her into something ominous and terrible, and also because there's a kind of intimacy in the lessons, even though it isn't the intimacy her mother imagines. And because she's crossed this line into adulthood that has something to do with her mother's fear and also has something to do with having achieved something valuable and important. Do you think that the sort of pivotal thing is the playing of the piece or do you think it's the the grabbing of the shoulders? Uh, I think there's sort of a one-two punch. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's the playing of the piece. And then the grabbing of the shoulders brings in her mother's fear and makes her realize also that she's brought him out of his fadedness into this sort of moment of excitement. And she stirred something up in him as well. Yeah. So so if you were going to advise someone to pick up a, a book by Laurie Colwyn now, is there a particular book you'd suggest? I think the collection this story is in, Passion and Affect, is really great. And then another marvelous thing is a novel made of short stories all about the same people, most of which were, or maybe all of which were published in The New Yorker. Um, and that's wonderful. And then her book of essays, Home Cooking, with the recipes in it, is fantastic. Except don't make the bread. Well, make the bread, just make it better than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Miley. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Miley Malloy's story, The Proxy Marriage, appeared in the May 21, 2012 issue of the magazine and is available online at newyorker.com. 
You can subscribe to this podcast as well as to The New Yorker Out Loud and The Political Scene podcast in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. 